Tom walked briskly across the terrace and into Dickie's studio. Want to go to Paris in a coffin? he asked. What? Dickie looked up from his watercolor. I've been talking to an Italian in Giorgio's. We'd start out from Trieste, ride in coffins in the baggage car escorted by some Frenchmen, and we'd get a hundred thousand lira apiece. I have the idea it concerns dope. Dope in the coffins? Isn't that an old stunt? We talked in Italian, so I didn't understand everything, but he said there'd be three coffins, and maybe the third has a real corpse in it, and they put the dope into the corpse. Anyway, we'd get the trip, plus the experience. He emptied his pockets of the packs of ship's shore, store Lucky Strikes that he had just bought from a street peddler for Dickie. What do you say? I think it's a marvelous idea, to Paris in a coffin. There was a funny smile on Dickie's face, as if Dickie were pulling his leg by pretending to fall in with it, when he hadn't the least intention of falling in with it. I'm serious, Tom said. He really is on the lookout for a couple of willing young men. The coffins are supposed to contain the bodies of French casualties from Indochina. The French escort is supposed to be the relative of one of them, or maybe all of them. It wasn't exactly what the man had said to him, but it was near enough. And 200,000 lira was over $300, after all. Plenty for a spree in Paris. Dickie was still hedging about Paris. Dickie looked at him sharply, put out the bent wisp of the Nazionale he was smoking, and opened one of the packs of Luckies. Are you sure the guy you were talking to wasn't under the influence of dope himself? You're so damned cautious these days, Tom said with a laugh. Where's your spirit? You look as if you don't even believe me. Come with me and I'll show you the man. He's still down there waiting for me. His name's Carlo. Dickie showed no sign of moving. Anybody with an offer like that doesn't explain all the particulars to you. They get a couple of tufts to ride from Trieste to Paris, maybe, but even that doesn't make sense to me. Will you come with me and talk to him? If you don't believe me, at least look at him. Sure. Dickie got up suddenly. I might even do it for a hundred thousand lira. Dickie closed a book of poems that had been lying face down on his studio couch, before he followed Tom out of the room. Marge had a lot of books of poetry. Lately, Dickie had been borrowing them. The man was still sitting at the corner table in Giorgio's when they came in. Tom smiled at him and nodded. Hello, Carlo, Tom said. Posso sedermi? Si, si, the man said, gesturing to the chairs at his table. This is my friend, Tom said carefully in Italian. He wants to know if the work with the railroad journey is correct. Tom watched Carlo looking Dickie over, sizing him up, and it was wonderful to Tom how the man's dark, tough, callous-looking eyes betrayed nothing but polite interest, how in a split second he seemed to take in and evaluate Dickie's faintly smiling but suspicious expression. Dickie's tan that could not have been acquired except by months of lying in the sun. 
his worn Italian-made clothes, and his American rings. A smile spread slowly across the man's pale, flat lips, and he glanced at Tom. Allora, Tom prompted, impatient. The man lifted his sweet martini and drank. The job is real, but I do not think your friend is the right man. Tom looked at Dickie. Dickie was watching the man alertly, with the same neutral smile that suddenly struck Tom as contemptuous. Well, at least it's true, you see, Tom said to Dickie. Mm-hmm, Dickie said, still gazing at the man as if he were some kind of animal which interested him and which he could kill if he decided to. Dickie could have talked Italian to the man. Dickie didn't say a word. Three weeks ago, Tom thought, Dickie would have taken the man up on his offer. Did he have to sit there looking like a stool pigeon or a police detective, waiting for reinforcements so he could arrest the man? Well, Tom said finally, you believe me, don't you? Dickie glanced at him. About the job? How do I know? Tom looked at the Italian expectantly. The Italian shrugged. There is no need to discuss it, is there? He asked in Italian. No, Tom said. A crazy directionless fury boiled in his blood and made him tremble. He was furious at Dickie. Dickie was looking over the man's dirty nails, dirty shirt collar, his ugly dark face that had been recently shaven, though not recently washed, so that where the beard has been was much lighter than the skin above and below it. But the Italian's dark eyes were cool and amiable, and stronger than Dickie's. Tom felt stifled. He was conscious he could not express himself in Italian. He wanted to speak both to Dickie and to the man. Niente, grazie, Alberto, Dickie said calmly to the waiter, who had come over to ask what they wanted. Dickie looked at Tom. Ready to go? Tom jumped up so suddenly, his straight chair upset behind him. He set it up again and bowed a goodbye to the Italian. He felt he owed the Italian an apology, yet he could not even open his mouth to say a conventional goodbye. The Italian nodded goodbye and smiled. Tom followed Dickie's long, white-clad legs out of the bar. Outside, Tom said, I just wanted to see... I just wanted you to see that it's true at last. Or, at least... I hope you see. All right, it's true, Dickie said, smiling. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, Tom demanded. The man's a crook. Is that what you wanted me to admit? Okay. Do you have to be so damn superior about it? Did he do anything to you? Am I supposed to get down on my knees to him? I've seen crooks before. This village gets lots of them. Dickie's blonde eyes frowned. What the hell is the matter with you? Do you want to take him up on his crazy proposition? Go ahead. I couldn't now if I wanted to, not after the way you acted. Dickie stopped in the road, looking at him. They were arguing so loudly, a few people around them were looking, watching. It could have been fun, Tom said. 
but not the way you chose to take it. A month ago, when we went to Rome, you'd have thought something like this was fun. Oh no, Dicky said, shaking his head. I doubt it. The sense of frustration and inarticulateness was agony to Tom, and the fact that they were being looked at. He forced himself to walk on in tense little steps at first, until he was sure that Dicky was coming with him. The puzzlement, the suspicion, was still in Dicky's face, and Tom knew Dicky was puzzled about his reaction. Tom wanted to explain it, wanted to break through to Dicky, so he would understand and they would feel the same way. Dicky had felt the same way he had a month ago. It's the way you acted, Tom said. You didn't have to act that way. The fellow wasn't doing you any harm. He looked like a dirty crook, Dickie retorted. For Christ's sake, go back if you like him so much. You're under no obligation to do what I do. Now Tom stopped. He had an impulse to go back. Not necessarily to go back to the Italian, but to leave Dickie. Then his tension snapped suddenly. His shoulders relaxed, aching, and his breath began to come fast through his mouth. He wanted to say, at least, all right, Dickie, to make it up, to make Dickie forget it. He felt tongue-tied. He stared at Dickie's blue eyes that were still frowning, the sun-bleached eyebrows white, and the eyes themselves shining and empty. Nothing but little pieces of blue jelly with a black dot in them, meaningless, without relation to him. You were supposed to see the soul through the eyes, to see love through the eyes. The one place you could look at another human being and see what really went on inside. And in Dickie's eyes, Tom saw nothing more now than he would have seen if he had looked at the hard, bloodless surface of a mirror. Tom felt a painful wrench in his breast, and he covered his face with his hands. It was as if Dickie had been suddenly snatched away from him. They were not friends. They didn't know each other. It struck Tom like a horrible truth. True for all time, true for the people he had known in the past, and for those he would know in the future. Each had stood and would stand before him, and he would know time and time again that he would never know them, and the worst was that there would always be the illusion for a time that he did know them, and that he and they were completely in harmony and alike. For an instant, the wordless shock of his realization seemed more than he could bear. He felt in the grip of a fit, as if he would fall to the ground. It was too much. The foreignness around him, the different language, his failure, and the fact that Diggy hated him. He felt surrounded by strangeness, by hostility. He felt Diggy yank his hands down from his eyes. What's the matter with you? Diggy asked. Did that guy give you a shot of something? No. Are you sure in your drink? No. The first drops of the evening rain fell on his head. There was a rumble of thunder, hostility from above, too. I want to die, Tom said in a small voice. Dickie yanked him by the arm. Tom tripped over a doorstep. 
They were in the little bar opposite the post office. Tom heard Tuki ordering a brandy, specifying Italian brandy, because he wasn't good enough for French, Tom supposed. Tom drank it off, slightly Swedish, medicinal tasting. Drank three of them, like a magic medicine to bring him back to what his mind knew was usually called reality. The smell of the nazionale in Dickie's hands. The curly-cued grain in the wood of the bar under his fingers. The fact that his stomach had a hard pressure in it, as if someone were holding a fist against his navel. The vivid anticipation of the long, steep walk from here up to the house. The faint ache that would come in his thighs from it. I'm okay, Tom said in a quiet, deep voice. I don't know what was the matter. Must have been the heat that got me for a minute. He laughed a little. That was reality, laughing it off, making it silly. Something that was more important than anything that had happened to him in the five weeks since he had met Dickie. Maybe that had ever happened to him. Dickie said nothing, only put the cigarette in his mouth and took a hundred, a couple of hundred lira bills from his black alligator wallet and laid them on the bar. Tom was hurt that he said nothing, hurt like a child who has been sick and probably a nuisance, but who expects at least a friendly word when the sickness is over. But Dickie was indifferent. Dickie had bought him the brandies as coldly as he might have bought them for a stranger he had encountered who felt ill and had no money. Tom thought suddenly, Dickie doesn't want me to go to Cortina. It was not the first time Tom had thought that. Marge was going to Cortina now. She and Dickie had bought a new, giant-sized thermos to take to Cortina the last time they had been in Naples. They hadn't asked him if he had like the thermos, or anything else. They were just quietly and gradually leaving him out of their preparations. Tom felt that Dickie expected him to take off, in fact, just before the Cortina trip. A couple of weeks ago, Dickie had said he would show him some of the ski trials around Cortina that were marked on a map that he had. Dickie had looked at the map one evening, but he had not talked to him. Ready? Dickie asked. Tom followed him out of the bar like a dog. If you can get home all right by yourself, I thought I'd run up and see Marge for a while, Dickie said on the road. I feel fine, Tom said. Good. Then he said over his shoulder as he walked away, Want to pick up the mail? I might forget. Tom nodded. He went into the post office. There were two letters. One to him from Dickie's father, one to Dickie from someone in New York who Tom didn't know. He stood in the doorway and opened Mr. Greenleaf's letter, unfolded the typewritten sheet respectfully. It had the impressive pale green letterhead of Burke Greenleaf Watercraft, Inc., with the ship's wheel trademark in the center. 10th November, 19. My dear Tom, In view of the fact that you have been with Dickie over a month and he shows no more sign of coming home 
Then before you went, I can only conclude that you haven't been successful. I realize that, with the best of intentions, you reported that he is considering returning, but frankly, I don't see it anywhere in his letter of 26th October. As a matter of fact, he seems more determined than ever to stay where he is. I want you to know that I and my wife appreciate whatever efforts you have made on our behalf and his. You need no longer consider yourself obligated to me in any way. I trust you have not inconvenienced yourself greatly by your efforts of the past month, and I sincerely hope the trip has afforded you some pleasure, despite the failure of its main objective. Both my wife and I send you greetings and our thanks. Sincerely, H.R. Greenleaf. It was the final blow. With the, f- with the cool tone, even cooler than his usual business-like coolness, because this was a dismissal and he had injected a note of courteous thanks in it, Mr. Greenleaf had simply cut him off. He had failed. I trust you have not inconvenienced yourself greatly. Wasn't that sarcastic? Mr. Greenleaf didn't even say that he would like to see him again when he returned to America. Tom walked mechanically up the hill. He imagined Dickie in Marge's house now, narrating to her the story of Carlo in the bar and his peculiar behavior on the road afterward. Tom knew what Marge would say. Why don't you get rid of him, Dickie? Should he go back and explain to them, he wondered, force them to listen? Tom turned around, looking at the inscrutable square front of Marge's house up the, on the hill, and its empty, dark-looking window. His denim jacket was getting wet from the rain. He turned its collar up. Then he walked on quickly up the hill, towards Dickie's house. At least, he thought proudly. He hadn't tried to wheedle any more money out of Mr. Greenleaf, and he might have. He might have, even with Dickie's cooperation, if he had ever approached Dickie about it when Dickie had been in a good mood. Anybody else would have, Tom thought, anybody, but he hadn't, and that counted for something. the corner of the terrace, staring out at the vague, empty line of the horizon and thinking of nothing. Feeling nothing except a faint, dreamlike lostness and aloneness. Even Dickie and Marge seemed far away, and what they might be talking about seemed unimportant. He was alone. This was the only important thing. He began to feel a tingling fear at the end of his spine tingling over his buttocks. He turned as he heard the gate open. Dickie walked up the path, smiling, but it struck Tom as a forced, polite smile. What are you doing, standing there in the rain? Dickie asked, ducking into the hall floor, hall door. It's very refreshing, Tom said pleasantly. Here's a letter for you. He handed Dickie his letter and stuffed the one from Mr. Greenleaf into his pocket. Tom hung his jacket in the hall closet. When Dickie had finished reading his letter, 
a letter that had made him laugh out loud as he read it. Tom said, Do you think Marge would like to go out to Paris with us when we go? Dickie looked surprised. I think she would. I'll ask her, Tom said cheerfully. I don't know if I should go out to Paris, Dickie said. I wouldn't mind getting away somewhere for a few days. But Paris, he lighted a cigarette. I'd just as soon go out to San Remo or even Genoa. That's quite a town. Paris? Genoa can't compare with Paris, can it? No, of course not, but it's a lot closer. But when will we get to Paris? I don't know, any old time. Paris will still be there. Tom listened to the echo of the words in his ears, searching their tone. The day before yesterday, Dickie had received a letter from his father. He had read a few sentences out loud, and they had laughed about something, but he had not read the whole letter as he had a couple of times before. Tom had no doubt that Mr. Greenleaf had told Dickie that he was fed up with Tom Ripley, and probably that he suspected him of using his money for his own entertainment. A month ago, Dickie would have laughed at something like that too, but not now, Tom thought. I just thought, while I have a little money left, we ought to make our Paris trip, Tom persisted. You go up. I'm not in the mood right now. Gotta save my strength for Cortina. Well, I suppose we'll make it San Remo then, Tom said, trying to sound agreeable, though he could have wept. All right. Tom darted from the hall into the kitchen. The huge white form of the refrigerator sprang out of the corner at him. He had wanted a drink with ice in it. Now he didn't want to touch the thing. He had spent a whole day in Naples with Dickie and Marge, looking at refrigerators, inspecting ice trays, counting the number of gadgets, until Tom hadn't been able to tell one refrigerator from another. But Dickie and Marge had kept at it with the enthusiasm of newlyweds. Then they had spent a few more hours in a cafe, discussing the respective merits of all the refrigerators they had looked at before they decided on the one they wanted. And now Marge was popping in and out more than ever because she stored some of her own food in it, and she often wanted to borrow ice. Tom realized suddenly why he hated the refrigerated refrigerator so much. It meant that Dickie was staying put. They finished not only their Greek trip this winter, but it meant Dickie probably never would move to Paris or Rome to live, as he and Tom had talked of doing in Tom's first weeks here. Not with a refrigerator that had the distinction being one of only about four in the village. A refrigerator with six ice trays and so many shelves on the door that it looked like a supermarket swinging out at you every time you opened it. Tom fixed himself an iceless drink. His hands were shaking. Only yesterday, Dickie had said, are you going home for Christmas? Very casually in the middle of some conversation, but Dickie knew damned well he wasn't going home for Christmas. 
He didn't have a home, and Dickie knew it. He had told Dickie all about Aunt Dottie in Boston. It had simply been a big hint, that was all. Marge was full of plans about Christmas. She had a can of English plum pudding she was saving. She was going to get a turkey from some contadino. Tom could imagine how she would slop it up with her saccharine sentimentality. Christmas tree, of course, probably cut out of cardboard. Silent night, eggnog, gooey presents for Dickie. Marge knitted. She took Dickie's socks home to darn all the time. And they'd both slightly, politely leave him out. Every friendly thing they would say to him would be a painful effort. Tom couldn't bear to imagine it. All right, he'd leave. He'd do something rather than endure Christmas with them. Tom supposed her good humor was due mostly to the fact that she now thought Tom had departed for America via Paris. Along with Marge's letter came one from Senior Pucci, saying that he had sold three pieces of his furniture for 150,000 lire in Naples, and that he had a prospective buyer for the boat, a certain Anastasio Martino of Montebello, who had promised to pay the first down payment within a week, but that the house probably couldn't be sold until summer when the Americans began coming in again. Less 15% for Senior Pucci's commission, the furniture sale amounted to $210, and Tom celebrated that night by going into a Roman nightclub and ordering a superb dinner, which he ate in elegant solitude at a candlelit table for two. He did not at all mind dining and going to the theater alone. It gave him the opportunity to concentrate on being Dickie Greenleaf. He broke his bread as Dickie did, thrust his fork into his mouth with his left hand as Dickie did, gazed off at the other tables and at the dancers in such a profound and benevolent trance that the waiter had to speak to him a couple of times to get his attention. Some people waved to him from a table and Tom recognized them as one of the American couples he had met at the Christmas Eve party in Paris. He made a sign of greeting in return, even remembered their name, suitors. He did not look at them again during the evening, but they left before he did and stopped by his table to say hello. All by yourself, the man asked. He looked a little tipsy. Yes, I have a yearly date with myself here, Tom replied. I celebrated a certain anniversary. The American nodded a little blankly, and Tom could see that he was stimmied for anything intelligent to say, as uneasy as any small-town American in the presence of cosmopolitan poise and sobriety, money and good clothes, even if the clothes were on another American. You said you were living in Rome, didn't you? His wife asked. No, I think we've forgotten your name, but we remember you very well from Christmas Eve. Greenleaf, Tom replied. Richard Greenleaf. Ah, yes, she said, relieved. Do 
you have an apartment here? She was all ready to take down his address in her memory. I'm staying at a hotel at the moment, but I'm planning to move into an apartment any day as soon as the decorating's finished. I'm at the Elysio. Why don't you give me a ring? We'd love to. We're on our way to Mallorca in three more days, but that's plenty of time. Love to see you, Tom said. Buona sera. Alone again, Tom returned to his private reveries. Not to open a bank account for Tom Ripley, he thought. From time to time, put a hundred dollars or so into it. Dickie Greenleaf had two banks, one in Naples and one in New York, with about five thousand dollars in each account. He might open the Ripley account with a couple of thousand and put into it the hundred and fifty thousand lira from the Montebello furniture. After all, he had two people to take care of. Chapter 15 He visited the Capitolina and the Villa Borghese, explored the Forum thoroughly, and took six Italian lessons from an old man in his neighborhood who had a tutoring sign in his window, and to whom Tom gave a false name. After the sixth lesson, Tom thought that his Italian was on par with Dickie's. He remembered verbatim several sentences that Dickie had said at one time or another, which he now knew were incorrect. For example, Ho paura che non c'è arrivata Giorgio one evening in Giorgio's when they had been waiting for Marge and she had been late. It should have been sia arrivata in the subjunctive after an expression of fearing. Dickie had never used the subjunctive as often as it should be used in Italian. Tom studiously kept himself from learning the proper uses of subjunctive. Tom bought dark red velvet for the drapes in his living room because the drapes that had come with the apartment offended him. When he had asked Signora Buffi, the wife of the house superintendent, if she knew of a seamstress who could make them up, Signora Buffi had offered to make them herself. Her price was 2,000 lire, hardly more than three dollars. Tom forced her to take 5,000. He bought several minor items to embellish his apartment, though he never asked anyone up. With the exception of one attractive but not very bright young man, an American, who had met who he had met in the Cafe Greco when the young man had asked him how to get to the Hotel Excelsior from there. The Excelsior was on the way to Tom's house, so Tom asked him to come up for a drink. Tom had only wanted to impress him for an hour and then say goodbye to him forever, which he did, after serving him his best brandy and strolling about his apartment, discoursing on the pleasure of life in Rome. The young man was leaving for Munich the following day. Tom carefully avoided the American residents of Rome who might expect him to come to their parties and ask them to his in return, though he loved to chat with Americans and Italians in the Café Greco and in the students' restaurants in the Via Margutta. 
told his name only to an Italian painter named Carlino, whom he met in a Via Margutta tavern, told him also that he painted, and was studying with a painter called Di Massimo. If the people ever investigated Dickie's activities in Rome, perhaps long after Dickie had disappeared and become Tom Ripley again, this one Italian painter could be relied upon to say that he knew Dickie Greenleaf had been painting in Rome in January. Carlino had never heard of Di Massimo, but Tom described him so vividly that Carlino would probably never forget him. He felt alone, yet not at all lonely. It was very much like the feeling on Christmas Eve in Paris, a feeling that everyone was watching him, as if he had an audience made up of the entire world, a feeling that kept him on his mettle, because to make a mistake would be catastrophic. Yet he felt absolutely confident he would not make a mistake. It gave his existence a peculiar, delicious atmosphere of purity like that, Tom thought, which a fine actor probably feels when he plays an important role on a stage with a conviction that the role he is playing could not be played better by anyone else. He was himself and yet not himself. He felt blameless and free, despite the fact that he consciously controlled every move he made. But he no longer felt tired after several hours of it, as he had at first. He had no need to relax when he was alone. Now, from the moment when he got out of bed and went to brush his teeth, he was Dickie, brushing his teeth with his elbow jutted out, Dickie rotating the eggshell on his spoon for the last bite, Dickie invariably putting back the first tie he pulled off the rack and selecting a second. He had even produced a painting in Dickie's manner. By the end of January, Tom thought that Fausto must have come and gone through Rome, though Marge's last letters had not mentioned him. Marge wrote, Care of the American Express, about once a week. She asked if he needed any socks or a muffler because she had plenty of time to knit, besides working on her book. She always put in a funny anecdote about somebody they knew in the village, just so Dickie wouldn't think that she was eating her heart out for him. Though obviously she was, and obviously she wasn't going to leave for the States in February without making another desperate try for him in person. Tom thought, hence, the investments of the long letters and the knitted socks and muffler which Tom knew were coming, even though he hadn't replied to her letters. Her letters repelled him. He disliked even touching them, and after he glanced through them, he tore them up and dropped them into the garbage. He wrote finally, FM giving up the idea of an apartment in Rome for the time being. Di Massimo is going to Sicily for several months, and I may go with him and go on somewhere from there. My plans are vague, but they have the virtue of freedom, and they suit my present mood. Don't send me any socks, Marge. I really don't need a thing. Wish you much luck with Mongebello. He had a ticket from Mallorca by train to Naples, 
Then the boat from Naples to Palma over the night of January 31st and February 1st. He had brought two new suitcases from Gucci's, the best leather goods store in Rome, one a large, soft suitcase of antelope hide, the other a neat, tan canvas with brown leather straps. Both bore Dickie's initials. He had thrown the shabir of his two suitcases away, and the remaining one he kept in the closet of his apartment, full of his own clothes, in case of emergency. But Tom was not expecting any emergencies. The scuttled boat in San Remo had never been found. Tom looked through the papers every day for something about it. While Tom was packing his suitcases one morning, his doorbell rang. He supposed it was a solicitor of some kind or a mistake. He had no name on his doorbell, and he had told the superintendent that he did not want his name on the doorbell because he didn't like people to drop in on him. It rang for the second time, and Tom still ignored it, and went on with his lackadaisical packing. He loved to pack, and he took a long time about it, a whole day or two days, laying Dickie's clothes affectionately into suitcases, now and then trying on a good-looking shirt or a jacket in front of the mirror. He was standing in front of the mirror, buttoning a blue and white seahorse pattern sport shirt of Dickie's that he had never worn, when there came a knock at his door. It crossed his mind that it might be Fausto, that it would be just like Fausto to hunt him down in Rome and try to surprise him. That was silly, he told himself, but his hands were cool with sweat as he went to the door. He felt faint and the absurdity of his faintness, plus the danger of keeling over and being found prostrate on the floor, made him wrench the door open with both hands, though he opened it by only a few inches. Hello, the American voice said out of the semi-darkness of the hall. Dickie, it's Freddy. Tom took a step back, holding the door open. He's... Won't you come in? He's not here right now. He should be back in a little later. Freddie Miles came in, looking around. His ugly, freckled face gawked in every direction. How in hell had he found the place, Tom wondered. Tom slipped his rings off quickly and pocketed them. And what else? He glanced around the room. You're staying with him? Freddie asked with that wall-eyed stare that made his face look idiotic and rather scared. Oh no, I'm just staying here for a few hours, Tom said, casually removing the seahorse shirt. He had another shirt on under it. Dickie's out for lunch. Otello's, I think he said. He should be back around three at the latest. One of the boofies must have let Freddie in, Tom thought, and told him which bell to press, and told him Signor Greenleaf was in, too. Freddie had probably said he was an old friend of Dickie's. Now he would have to get Freddie out of the house without running into Signora Buffy downstairs, because she always sang out, Buongiorno, Signor Greenleaf. I met you in Mangibello, didn't I? Freddie asked. Aren't you Tom? I thought you were coming to Cortina. I couldn't make it, thanks. How is Cortina? 
Oh, fine. What happened to Dickie? Didn't he write you? He decided to spend the winter in Rome. He told me he'd written to you. Not a word, unless he wrote to Florence. But I was in Salzburg, and he had my address. Freddy half sat on Tom's long table, rumpling the green silk runner. He smiled. Marge told me he'd moved to Rome, but she didn't have any address except the American Express. It was only by the damnest luck I found his apartment. I ran into somebody at the Greco last night who happened to know his address. What's this idea of... Who? Tom asked. An American? No, an Italian fellow. Just a young kid. Freddy was looking at Tom's shoes. You've got the same kind of shoes Dickie and I have. They wear like iron, don't they? I bought my pair in London eight years ago. They were Dickie's grain leather shoes. These came from America, Tom said. Can I offer you a drink, or would you rather try to catch Dickie at Otello's? Do you know where it is? There's not much use in your waiting, because he generally takes till three with his lunches. I'm going out soon myself. Freddy had strolled toward the bedroom and stopped, looking at the suitcases on the bed. Is Dickie leaving for somewhere, or did he just get here? Freddy asked, turning. He's leaving. Didn't Marge tell you? He's going to Sicily for a while. When? Tomorrow. Or late tonight, I'm not sure. Say, what's the matter with Dickie lately? Freddy asked, frowning. What's the idea of all the seclusion? He says he's been working pretty hard this winter, Tom said, in an offhand tone. He seems to want privacy, but as far as I know, he's still on good terms with everybody, including Marge. Freddy smiled again, unbuttoning his big polo coat. He's not going to stay on good terms with me if he stands me up a few more times. Are you sure he's on good terms with Marge? I got the idea from her that they'd had a quarrel. I thought maybe that was why they didn't go to Cortina. Freddy looked at him expectantly. Not that I know of. Tom went to the closet to get his jacket so that Freddy would know he wanted to leave. Then realized, just in time, that the gray flannel jacket that matched his trousers might be recognizable as Dickie's if Freddy knew Dickie's suit. Tom reached for a jacket of his own and for his own overcoat that were hanging at the extreme left of the closet. The shoulders of the overcoat looked as if the coat had been on a hanger for weeks, which it had. Tom turned around and saw Freddy staring at the silver identification bracelet on his left wrist. It was Dickie's bracelet, which Tom had never seen him wearing, but had found in Dickie's stud box. Freddy was looking at it as if he'd seen it before. Tom put on his overcoat casually. Freddy was looking at him now with a different expression, with a little surprise. Tom knew what Freddy was thinking. He stiffened. Sensing danger. You're not out of the woods yet, he told himself. 
You're not out of the house yet. Ready to go, Tom asked. You do live here, don't you? No, Tom protested, smiling. The ugly, freckled, blotched face stared at him from under the garish thatch of red hair. If they could only get out without running into Senora Buffy downstairs, Tom thought. Let's go. Dickie's loaded you up with all his jewelry, I see. Tom couldn't think of a single thing to say, a single joke to make. Oh, it's a loan, Tom said in his deepest voice. Dickie got tired of wearing it, so he told me to wear it for a while. He meant the identification bracelet, but there was also the silver clip on his tie, he realized, with G on it. Tom had bought the tie clip himself. He could feel the belligerence growing in Freddie Miles, as surely as if his huge body were generating heat that he could feel across the room. Freddie was the kind of ox who might beat up somebody he thought was a pansy, especially if the conditions were as propitious as these. Tom was afraid of his eyes. Yes, I'm ready to go, Freddie said grimly, getting up. He walked to the door and turned with a swing of his broad shoulders. That's the Otello, not far from the Ingolterra. Yes, Tom said. He's supposed to be there by one o'clock. Freddie nodded. Nice to see you again, he said unpleasantly and closed the door. Tom whispered a curse. He opened the door slightly and listened to the quick tap-tap tap tap of Freddy's shoes descending the stairs. He wanted to make sure Freddy got out with, without speaking to one of the boofies again. Then he heard Freddy's buongiorno signora. Tom leaned over the stairwell. Three stories down, he could see part of Freddy's coat sleeve. He was talking in Italian with signora Buffy. The woman's voice came more clearly. Only Signor Greenleaf, she was saying. No, only one. Signor Key? No, Signor. I do not think he has gone out today at all, but I could be wrong, she laughed. Tom twisted the stair rail in his hands as if it were Freddy's neck. Then Tom heard Freddy's footsteps running up the stairs. Tom stepped back into the apartment and closed the door. He'd go on insisting that he didn't live here, that Dickie was at Otello's, or that he didn't know where Dickie was. But Freddy wouldn't stop now until he had found Dickie, or Freddy would drag him downstairs and ask Senior Nobufi who he was. Freddy knocked on the door. The knob turned. It was locked. Tom picked up a heavy glass ashtray. He couldn't get his hands across it, and he had to hold it by the edge. He tried to think just for two seconds more. Wasn't there another way out? What would he do with a body? He couldn't think. This was the only way out. He opened the door with his left hand. His right hand with the ashtray was drawn back and down. Freddy came into the room. Listen, would you mind telling 